Welcome! This is the Hassan Sorrells Audio Experience. My name is Hassan Sorrells. Look, we are trying something different. So I want you to join us on the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience for interviews, for rants, for raves, for thoughts, for process. And you'll get a knee-deep, hip-deep, and ear-deep view inside of what I do. Look, if you like what you're listening to, please like me, please rank me, Stitcher, iTunes, Overcast, Google Play Music, everywhere where you get your groove on, I want you to give me a few stars. All right, now, let's head into the experience. How you doing, Julio? Doing great. How are you? Like I said before, I'm hanging out. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Every day is a great day to be alive. Every day, <laughs> every day when you are alive is a great day to be alive. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Well, you know, if you if you get to wake up, the rest of the day really is icing on the cake. It just kind of rolls. It just kind of rolls. That's right. So we're doing a whole thing on the podcast lately about like fathers and sons and men stuff. Um, I talked to a friend of mine who um, he's a uh, in a previous podcast episode. He's a drug and alcohol counselor now, or has a past history of being a drug and alcohol counselor. He's a poet and. A, writer and we talked a lot about him and his father and his relationship with his father um and kind of that personality and then i got an upcoming episode um where i'm going to be talking with a guy who uh, counsels fathers who are new fathers right um who uh who have uh (laughs) kind of wandered into the fatherhood situation and they didn't really they didn't really anticipate it or or expect it yeah 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 i'm a <laughs> well, and he he has a background. You know, he was in um, he was in prison for years, and then he got out, and he you know basically put his life back together. He found Christ, um, and now he's you know he's doing that work. You know, and so it comes from a very deep place for him. But I wanted to talk with you because you know you've got a special little little idea about this niche. So why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Well, my name is Julio Barreto. I am from the Bronx. I'm a Bronx boy through and through. And uh, right now I do some real estate development work, helping individuals and uh, individuals, couples and uh, new indiv- first time home buyers, individuals and couples become home buyers, uh, new or not at uh, novice or new investors, primarily African-American use real estate as a vehicle to create wealth. And um but then I, I also, I, I mentor people, I work on personal leadership development, and in particular when it comes to men, I've, I've, I've for the last 10 years, I've been working on a book uh, called For Flawed Men Only, that's really geared towards helping men muddle through this, the, the confusion of what it means to be a man, because that journey to manhood, it's a confusing journey. Uh, we won't admit necessarily that we're confused along the way although our actions belie our thoughts <laughs> you know um and um and, and, and what i'm realizing is that the, the length of time and sometimes the struggle that i have with putting pen to paper i think is really kind of just reflective of my own personal journey about what it means to be a man and even kind of sorting through and gaining greater clarity on some of the issues I think that we all confront and and need some some guidance, some reassurance, um, and, and some direction. So, 
Okay, so there's like eight different things in there. <laughs> We're gonna start. Yeah, there's with. a lot of stuff in there. There's yeah, a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just packed into the last two minutes. Um, so I'm confused about what it means to be a man right now. Um, I mean, no, not confused, but I mean, like, I've been confused since I was like 15. <laughs> it's just a general state of confusion. Um, but let's start off with that idea. What does it actually mean to be a man? Because I don't. I, I think you're right. Society used to give Western culture. Because I don't know what's going on in the East. Western culture used to give good benchmarks, I think, or at least solid ones, um, passed down from father to son. And with the redefinition, let's let's frame it that way, of what family is, I think some of those benchmarks have gone away. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I like? I, I think so. You know, the, uh, for me, I think that the I read a book called "The Man of Steel and Velvet." Mm-hmm. Uh, by Audrey Okun, I think it was. And I think that helped me gain greater clarity on what it meant to be a man. And that was, you're a provider, you're a protector, you are the standard bearer for your family, if you will. And and that's the side that I think that we're taught uh, is all that we're supposed to be measured by. But what he says in that book, there's that velvet side. And that's where we, we display our heart. We, we, we show respect to our, our spouses. We, we, we love and, and, and show compassion for our children as opposed to just being, you know, the, the, um, the disciplinarian, the really the, you know, the hard ass, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's really kind of that balance there. And, 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 and particularly in that book, he talks about, the relationship between men and women. And he says mm-hmm. that the, from his perspective, the reason why you have things like feminism and, 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 and sort of quote unquote women's liberation is that women don't feel respected or treated equally in the home. They're supposed to be man's partner, their their mate, yet they tend to be, um, we tend to treat them, at least historically, have treated them more as being more servants, glorified servants than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that as, as things have evolved over time, mm-hmm. I think the combination of the traditional standards that um, I think our parents, you know, sort of instilled in us, mm-hmm. uh, combined with, I think, women kind of finding their voices, mm-hmm. I think has kind of created some confusion amongst men about what our role is. Mm-hmm in society and in these relationships and and i think that go ahead no go ahead no i'm just i'm thinking about i'm thinking about sort of this confusion idea because i think that there's a hey, there's something to that um and i don't necessarily think it's anything new I th- again i think dudes have always been confused like i think that that's just kind of the nature of being a man um and i don't mean i don't mean confused in the sense of I don't know my identity. I think that's pretty well cut and dry from birth, you know, out of the womb. I, I think I it's more confusion so. about where you fit. Well, I think there's both. I think I think there is a, I think there is an issue of identity in this regard. From birth, where where our physical construct sort of defines us as males. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but our identity as men, I think that's part of what is 
part of that confusing journey, right? So, 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 so we go through, I think in some cases, we, we're, 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 there's, there's the man that we want to be. There's the man that we think we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. They're the man that we have to be, mm-hmm. depending on our situation. And then it's the man, the, the man that we are. Mm-hmm. You know, right. And so, I, you know, I think that with with age, I think some of those kind of meld together, if you will, or you you gain greater clarity in terms of who you are. You're less concerned with who you think you're supposed to be. Um, uh, you know, and that's goes to peer pressure, those sort of things. But, um you know, I, I think because we have so many different competing examples mm-hmm. of what a man is supposed to be, mm-hmm. that the, the, if you will, the process for us to feel comfortable with who we are, our own individual uh, comfort level as a man, sometimes we have to go through, I think, unnecessarily a lot of crazy stuff to figure that out because. We're either supposed to be that traditional Western man, right, right, or we're supposed to be this, you know, let let the lady do whatever she wants to do, or somewhere in the middle, right. And, and I'll give you, and I'll give you, an, I'll give you an example because I think this, 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 you know, to me, every time I think about it, I shake my head. I was in line at the supermarket one day, okay, and um, there was a gentleman behind me, and I guess you know, this is probably thirty years ago now, maybe, but. Um, and he was older than I was. He was probably a good 10, 15 years older than I was. And I had a bag, I had a box of tampons that I was bringing home for my wife. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, we just started talking. He says, I would never go to the store and get that for my wife. And he said, no, no, <laughs> you know, damn, no man would do that. I said, okay. And I just turned away. Right. Yeah. You know, I said, it's a box of tampons. I mean, what, what, you know, what, what's up with this? You know? <laughs> but, 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 but to him, no self-respecting man would do that, right? So, but that yeah, comes yeah, a lot yeah, from yeah. that comes a lot. But that comes a lot from like our fathers, right? Like my father was a blue-collar guy. Like he, I don't think. Well, I don't know. He might have. He might have. He he had his own quirks. He had his own individual quirks. He might have gone and bought a box of tampons. He might have. Um, I mean, for for. For Pete's sake, the man created a garden in his own backyard and stuff like that. So he might have, but like I definitely think he would not have. He would have taken up, you know, your position of just like, well, I just can't talk to you, brother. And then he, he just yeah, would have been like turned around. But, yeah, but, but, but see, my, my point though is we get all these different kind of inputs into right. what a man is supposed to do, right? And particularly when you're young, because mm-hmm. the natural inclination of a young male is to butt heads with his dad. Right. That's part of that. That's part of that male assertion of being a man, right? And so you get, you know, your father who is one, uh, who, who is the dominant presence, with the, the dominant role model, whether he's in your life or not. That that that's the early on in, in life. That's the dominant image of what a father is supposed to be. And then you know, depending on where you live, it's it's the the parents of your friends, it's uh, coaches, it's teachers. Um, and those teachers, can, in many cases, were women. So their own issues with men sometimes gets, get, get, um, get imposed on you. And, and so, so there's just a lot of confusion there. You know, if you're, if you're an athlete, you know, or if you're not an athlete, 
you know, because I know I grew up in an environment where if you weren't an athlete, you know, you were a punk. There was something wrong with you. And as an adult, I realized that that was a stupid way of thinking, but that, that was the environment I was in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in some environments, if you're not a thug, depending on the environment that you're in, you, you know, so, so, so that's what I mean, that there are all these different, you know, um, images in your identity of who you are sometimes, um, you know, really kind of finding and feeling comfort with who you are as a man can be either very painful or it takes a long time before you realize and feel comfortable in your own skin. Understanding there's a certain level, a certain amount of that that is part of the normal maturation process, right? Because you, it just, we all go get to a point where we, in, in our lives where we we realize our strengths, our weaknesses, we have a comfort level with who we are as a person, we work on our strengths, we work on our weaknesses, those sort of things. But I think for men, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's very difficult. And then compound that if you're a person of color, you're, um, you, you know, there are subtle things that sometimes you can't put your finger on that mm-hmm. gnaw your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I had a, a high school friend who black lived in Japan, lives there now, fully bilingual. And I, he came back on a visit and I said, John, I got to ask you this question. So what's it like being a black man in Japan? And he said, well, Julio, you need to understand that their image is really based for the most part of the 1950s. So this is in the 80s that he and I were talking. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's evolved sometimes. But he said, he said, but you have to understand the Japanese culture is, there's the Japanese and there's everybody else. Right. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Right. I have done a so, good so, authority. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so if you're not Japanese, you know, and so he says, so you can deal with that. It's clear, cut and dry. Mm-hmm. But here in the States, you're told that you're accepted, but you're not. And that kind of messes with your head. Well, and that's you know? because we have a multicultural non-homogenous you know culture we just do we have a multi even among right. even among white people like oh yeah irish white people italian white people polish white people like a black person can look at them or a latino person can look mm-hmm. at them and go well y'all white like y'all the same but they know the difference like right. they know that's for right. sure that's exactly right that's exactly you know, right just like North you look at all Hispanic. Southern Italy, yeah. right, right. or you look at hispanics oh well you know i'm from mexico i'm from honduras i'm from el salvador i'm from right, right, you know right, wherever right, 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 and right. so white people vice versa i don't i don't know mexican right you're mexican <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so you know that's the the miracle of america i've been saying this for years the miracle of america is you have a multi-ethnic non-homogenous society built not on and we can argue about the principle of whether or not this actually gets walked out in reality or not but this is the thing that's written down you got to go with what the people said based on a creed not based on class or who your mama was or any of that stuff and we fought a lot on this continent um to i spilled a lot of blood on this continent too to get to that creed and get to the full representation and reality of that creed uh, and taking it to, of course, its logical end, which is where we are at right now in, in, in the first part of the 20th, 21st century. So, you know, definitely, I mean, I understand, but it's, it's, it's just because countries are different. China's the same way from what I understand. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No question. No question. And I don't disagree with you at all. I don't disagree with you at all. There's there's something about that whole racial dynamic that mm-hmm. adds a twist that, oh, yeah. you know, that 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 um, that other communities don't necessarily have to deal with. But I, but I agree with you. I think that. um I think, you know, there's something special about those words. Those words stir your soul. Right. You know, there's there's a reason why it was illegal for certain people not to read. Right. Not to be able to read. Yep. Because you can't you can't repeat those words and not have your soul stirred. Right. Right. You know, and, and once once that soul is activated. You know, there's there's nothing on God's green earth that can stop it. That's right. True. That's that, that, you know that 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 is that's the beauty of people. Once mm-hmm. once you get their soul stirred, you know they're an unstoppable force. And, and and I think that I think that's one of the things that has I think has made this country so great is that um, again people are are their, their souls their spirits are are, are stirred. The, the challenge is is that because of the way that the country was founded and structured, there's there's a mindset that says that that really should not be for everybody. And so we're still kind of kind of clashing with with, with sort of the remnants of some of that. Well, and Benjamin uh, Franklin didn't think we were all going to make it. You talk about the soul stirring part. Like, he didn't think we were going to make it. He was like, no, like it can't work. And, and you can look, go and look at anything that the founding fathers, speaking of fathers, the founding fathers yeah. wrote down, you know, they they had their doubts. Because right. they understood that yeah. soul stirring thing, right? They they understood. Well, you use the word soul. <laughs> they understood that there was an eternal thing that they were that they were seeking to get to, and they understood also that when you, <laughs> this is an idea that I've been exploring on on our other podcast properties and in, in some of our other writings and in our books. Um, but when you when you strive towards an ideal even if that ideal is in your home, like your father is the ideal. We're going to get back to that in just a second. But if you're a man, the father is your ideal. Okay. If you're a nation state, the words are the ideal. Whenever you strive to the ideal, the ideal judges you. And it always finds you wanting. It just does. Psychologically judges you, emotionally judges you, materially judges you, and even spiritually judges you. Now, the easy way out of that is, well, we just won't have an ideal. Well, then you have no goal. And if you have no goal, then you're just wandering around. And you... And, and, you, and you're 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 subject to whatever strong man comes into comes into power. Yeah, ideology and, and, gonna grab and, you. And, yeah, and, and it always leads to death and destruction. You know, uh, Cornell West once made a comment on the Joe Rogan experience that mm-hmm. I thought was was insightful. He said that you know he said the beauty about the United States is this experiment on democracy because people naturally are inclined to respond to authoritative figures throughout man's history. They've had somebody tell them what to do. Yes. And I would here, agree with Cornell West about that. That is one of the interesting Cornell West. <laughs> Cor- <laughs> me and Cornell West might actually agree about something. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, 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 and yeah, right. And, 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 um, and, and he says, but here you're, ex- you, 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 people are expected to kind of take responsibility for themselves. For sure. I agree with that. Yep, absolutely. You know, you know, and so and so there's this constant pull. So that's why sometimes when you have a quote unquote strong man mm-hmm. who can lead the country, sometimes it can be dangerous. Sometimes it's important you need strong leadership. I'm not I'm not uh, arguing against that, but uh sometimes if it's the wrong 
it's, if it's the wrong person, because people have that natural affinity to, to be, just tell me what to do. Right. Um, you know, th- that's where things can get a little dicey sometimes. Yeah, that's but but yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 again, going going back to going back to, to the father thing, and 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 I think that this whole deal about ideals, right, versus kind of like reality, you know. And I think that that sometimes as a father, I think that's part of the challenge, is being transparent enough with your kids so that they realize that you're a person. And that you're not perfect so that you don't necessarily lose luster in their eyes when they suddenly discover, oh, well, my dad really isn't. Again, I think that sometimes, um, I think sometimes the danger of fatherhood is the, 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 the pedestal that we're on has such a lasting generational effect that we have to be, yeah, we have to be that disciplinary, but we have to be that mentor to help guide, particularly our sons through that journey. So they realize, hey, listen, you don't have to be perfect. You know, no one's perfect, but you got to strive for excellence and you're going to fall, but you get back up. Okay. Okay. I'm going to take a note on that because I'm, I'm taking notes while you're talking. So strive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I want to get back to this idea of like of, of excellence and because I think that that is a word that, well, we're going to get back to that in just a second. So let's make this a little bit personal. Tell okay. us a little bit about your father and your relationship with him. My, my, my dad um, didn't know his father growing up. Mm-hmm. He was uh, his, uh, his, my maternal grandparents, my paternal grandparents, they, uh, they split, they divorced when he was two. Okay. Uh, and so he did not meet his father until he came to New York when he was 21. Okay. And then, uh, let me see, I think a couple of months after that, I think that's when he met my mother. Three months after that, they got married. And I think this year will be 73 years that they've been married. So so growing up. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stayed married. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, so 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 as I've learned over the years, you know, we had a little bit of a distant relationship growing up. And as I've learned over the years, he had no model to show him how to be a dad. Right. OK. You know, there, and, and, for, for, and it was a blessing to us because my paternal grandfather, to say the least, <laughs> wasn't a cool dude. Right. right? <laughs> to say the least. So 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 so, so I think it's some respects he broke a generational curse there mm-hmm. and he created an environment in the home where you know they, we always had a roof over our head right. we had clothes on our back we had food there was love he, he he tried to make sure that we had a strong family bond so that and one of my sisters and i were t- I'm, I'm the fourth of five kids and the mm-hmm. only boy fourth of five kids um, and my sister and my younger sister were talking about this uh, a couple of years ago that we don't really remember any kind of, you know, strife within the family. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad would not let that happen because of his own experience. Right. Um, and so, you know, and I, I was a typical boy. I was a knucklehead. I was going to figure stuff out myself. And um, and not that I was, you know, really went far afield or anything like that. I mean, I grew up in New York in the Bronx and I saw enough of the streets that I said, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Um you know, my motto is I'd rather be dead in the streets than alive in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, so it just wasn't for me. And so, you know, I think that 
uh, I think he always tried to make sure that I had opportunities. I loved sports growing up. So I always, you know, was involved in sports. That was my identity up until high school when things didn't, didn't happen the way I thought it would. And then I went off to college and, and, um, yeah, I, I basically sort of drank and smoked my way through college, you know, to be honest with you. And, mm-hmm. and, and my, my, um, they say consistency is the key to success. Well, oh, yeah. It, well, I was consistently a C student. You know, I, <laughs> my, my criteria for college was. Um, well, C's got degrees. So. <laughs> yeah. The, the first school that was the furthest away, the first school that accepted me was the furthest away was the one that I went to. Okay. Right. Because I, I, cause I knew I needed to get away really to kind of find myself, if you mm-hmm. will. And so. And so I think that he always had, he's always very supportive uh, in his own way, the way that his generation kind of showed support, mm-hmm. not really showing much emotions. Um, we took him and my mother to Puerto Rico for their 65th wedding anniversary. And we took him to the island of Culebra. He was, it's an island next to Puerto Rico. And he was, he was born there. Hmm. That was the first time he was there. At the time he was um so he was in his mid 80s i guess i think he was 85 that was the first time he had been there in 83 years and later on facebook he said well you know i got i I got so emotional i had to walk away because i couldn't let my kids see me cry You know, it's okay, Dad. You could have cried. You know, we went older, yes, you know. Yeah, you're 85 years old, brother. It's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. I'm like, gonna judge you. Yeah, but he's told that he's he, he's deserved to be a crotchety old man. You know, if he wants to be. Um, so, 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 so that was that. But, 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 but I knew that. Um, you know, when I had a son, I wanted to be more involved with my son, mm-hmm. be kind of more active with my son. One of my friends that I grew up with, he and his father had that kind of relationship. And, I said, mm-hmm. well, you know, and, and so my wife, my, my dad and I, you know, are close. Um, but, but, but again, it's taken a while. I remember the first time I, I, when I told him I loved him, he couldn't handle it. He got off the phone, gave it to my mother. <laughs> you know, and now, now, you know, we say it back and forth, but, but he was just that kind of generation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, but again, as I said, it, it, you know, it, we always had a roof over our head. You know, that the, the, the home was always a safe place to go to. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that my wife and I, you know, we wanted to do with our son. Uh, and we only had one child. So whenever any of his friends wanted to come over, hey, there's open house. They want to come. They're more than happy to come here. I'd rather have you here than somebody than someplace else. I'd rather be, you know, that kind of thing. So. And we, we, the same approach we have with our grandkids. We want our house to be the safe house. People want to come. Whenever the girls want to come down, they can come to our grandson. When he wants to come, they can come down. Uh, so he created that kind of legacy. And so so even with, um, you know, he's, got, he's at end-stage end renal right now. So he's going through some stuff mm-hmm. up there in New York. But, you know, you have the great-grandkids. You know, we have he has one, one great-granddaughter who is estranged from her mother, but she still stays in contact with him. Okay. Um, you know, he now has, they now have two great greats. I, I guess they were just born a couple, about a year or so apart. Um, so so they have always been kind of like the glue for everybody in the family to kind of come together right? because he wanted to establish that kind of family environment that he didn't necessarily have growing up. And to my grandmother's credit, he says she never badmouthed uh, his father. Now, okay, now I want to pause on that for just a moment. I think that's huge, and I think that that gets incredibly underrated. Um, so, 
you know, the cultural thing around fathers is Homer Simpson. That's the classic kind of cultural conception of father, particularly in a modern post. I'm not going to go back as far as leave it to Beaver. Not going to go back far, but a modern post. um, Let's say Bill Cosby (laughs) before Bill Cosby was, you know, whatever. Yeah, I got you. I got you. But you know, in in that in that modern era between like 1992 and now, which I consider to be the modern era. That model of Homer Simpson, um, the model of Tim Allen on home improvement, um, the model of um, I I never watched this show because I didn't need to. But the model of whatever Ed O'Neill is doing on Modern Family, like I don't know, but a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't watched that, but yeah, you know, but that's that's the cultural model. Right. And these cultural models. And this is what I tell leaders. Right. The cultural models that people walk around in their heads with that creates narratives that layer on top of the family narrative and then layer on top of the the community narrative and now you've got the internet that layers other things on top of that narrative and spreads right. it around and people come to you on your team with all these narratives in their head that they don't even know how to dig through and sift through they're just reacting and responding and giving you information and communicating to you and it's up to you as a leader to figure out what the hell is actually happening inside of those narratives right. okay which is by the way is the challenge of leadership and that's why a, we really need strong, not strong, we really need good, uh, intentional leadership. Uh, B, in order for people to be good, intentional leaders and to be effective, they actually have to be curious about what those narratives are that are going on in people's heads. You actually have to give a damn. You actually have to care about your people. Um, and then number three, you have to understand the power of those narratives and and those how those narratives are working on you as a leader and not ignore the cultural power and just say, right. well, that just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm paying these people. Okay. All that trash you got to throw out because maybe that worked in the mid 20th century between 1950 and 1970, that kind of thinking, but it don't work now. Right, exactly. So you've got Homer Simpson as the model, right? And these cultural models are models where um, the father's kind of a doofus, doesn't really know what's going on, and the mom kind of guides him, you know, because like she can't take him on directly, but she can undermine him and guide him. And, and usually it's more undermining than guiding. Um, she can undermine him, make him look foolish in front of the kids, and the kids know where the real power is, and that's where they go to. And feminists hate it when you say this out loud, but it's the truth. Um, you know, men hate it when you say it out loud, <laughs> but it's the truth. And you get you get four guys in a room together, and eventually, if you're all honest, that's going to come up. Yeah, you know, usually the woman's the one that rules the home. Yeah, right. And so, I, you know, I go back to the biblical model of leadership and the biblical model of headship and, and all that in the home because that's how I'm wired. I'm Christian, so right. I'm wired in that direction. And I'm a Christian who's actually read the Bible, so I actually know what's in the book. I got you. You I know, you. read yeah, it a few you. times. <laughs> you know, I got you. I got you. I got you. Just, just, just a few times. Yeah, you, um, we'll, we'll come back to that. Cause, yeah, because yeah, that's, that, that's an important point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you mentor people who are culturally confused, who have a worldview that is... I'm not going to, well, yeah, I am. I am because it's my podcast. I can use the hard word. That's fundamentally paganistic, right? And in a pagan worldview, 
Um, I think of the old Roman view of, of fatherhood, the old Roman view of male leadership, which was I'm in charge. I have sexual rights to everybody in the home and everybody outside the home. And if I decide to put you out on the street, you're done. That's it. I can kill you. I can take your life away if I want. Now, I'm going to go to war for 20 years, but I can take your life away if I want, if I'm a free Roman male-born citizen. That's, 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 what, that's what it meant in a pagan culture. And I think that people underestimate the speed limiter power of Christianity on all of that. But I think we're going to find out, because we've pushed Christianity as far out of the public square as we possibly can, we're going to find out just exactly what that looks like. Yeah. Um, I think we're on the cusp of some very nasty things happening. Um, how do you mentor I, I, people I, I, who I, are culturally confused? <laughs> well, well, one of the things that I, I, I find myself increasingly asking people is what are their, I don't want to know your values. I want to know what your principles are. Okay. What yeah. are your drawing the line, the line in the sand, things that you really uphold? Now, again, my background has been in politics for the most part, 25 mm -hmm. years. And the things that Republicans are complaining about now mm -hmm. are no different than the things that Democrats complained about when the Republicans were in power and vice versa. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's that whole cycle. Yeah. Politics so, is not going to be the solution to our problem. Like, just, no, no, no. And, and I'm not suggesting that it is. But my point, though, is this, is that we spend so much time identifying, going back to scripture, the, mm -hmm. the, the speck in somebody else's eye that we don't look at the plank in our own eye. Right. right? Yep. We're so yep. quick, to, and particularly Christians do this as well, we're so quick to condemn the sin of someone else. Mm hmm we're great judges when it comes to condemning somebody else's sin, but we're even better lawyers when it comes to defending out. So, so, so people say that they, that they are, that they are principally based when they tell, when, when I hear people say, well, I always vote Republican. I always vote Democrat I, I, because I believe in their principles. No, you don't believe in their principles. You believe in their ideology. Mm -hmm. You just use scripture. You use God as your weapon of choice to carry that ideology through, mm -hmm. right? And so, so when I'm talking to people, I try and find out what are really the fundamental principles that you really stand on, your line in the sand. Mm -hmm. And they'll say things like, you know, well, family comes first. Okay, well, what do you mean by that, by family? Right, yeah. You, you know, what, what, do you, what exactly do you mean? Because so, so, sometimes I think that in families, we give family greater rope to fail then we do people we don't know when we actually should be the opposite because we know family and we should hold them to a higher standard and expect more from them as opposed to being so short with people we don't know because we don't know what's going on in their lives. You know, we don't know if the, the, the word that we give them, even if it's just hello, could be the word that literally saves their lives. Right. You just don't know the power of the spoken word. And so so I think that I think that people are searching for someone that they can hang their head on certain principles or values that they, in their soul, knows is right. Mm -hmm. Right? They fundamentally know it's right. And 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 and, and as I, I, I my, my my as much as I love politics, my interest in it waned as my faith increased. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And 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 I and I realized that. When God says, seek the truth, and the truth will set you free, at least for me, he made it very clear that my personal, my political, any of those other things didn't matter. Right. Right? 
and 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 you know that you won are, are standing on the truth or you're standing on your principles when it conflicts with what your personal philosophy may be and i use this one with one example when the quote-unquote obamacare was being voted on mm-hmm. john Kasich, the former governor of ohio who is not one to be considered to be a a fiscal liberal right always was a fiscal conservative. Mm-hmm. The time he was, he was the budget chair in the House. When he came out in support of it, he made a statement. He said, I, I had to ask myself, he said, well, I fundamentally don't believe the federal government should be involved in this. I had to ask myself, if I was standing in front of, uh, in front of the Golden Gate, the Pearly Gates, and St. Peter said, <laughs> what yeah. did you do in this world that helped people well, I was opposed. I, I stood on my I stood on my ideology, my principle. I was opposed. Yeah, but this helped people, you know. And I took I thought that took just a lot of guts. And I'm not saying that in support or you know in mm-hmm. opposition to the Affordable Care. I'm not at all. But here was a guy who went against what his ideology was to say, "I'm a Christian. What does my principle tell me is the right thing to do?" Mm-hmm. Now, part of the challenge is is that we all can interpret Scripture very differently. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. you know, January 6th, you had people standing there saying that this was God's will that 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 the country be taken back and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and I remember standing there saying to myself, is this really what God wants? You know, for, for myself, it just didn't seem right. So 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 again, I think one is I need to know what your principles are, what it is that you're really looking to do, what it is that what is it that's that pains you. What, what, what's, what's your struggle? What, what is it that you're, you're, you're having a problem with? Uh, when it comes to the male-female relationship, I'm a fundamental believer. A man can't live with a witch and a, and a woman can't live with a wimp, right? <laughs> Men and women were designed to be, to look each other in the eye and make things work. And when you have a man and woman together, they may, it, things work out. They balance themselves out. Now, there's, as one of my pastors would say, there's that behind the curtain stuff, mm-hmm. right? There's the behind the backstage stuff that comes to fruition. You know, you got women going back to my grand, my, my, my my grandmother. They have daddy issues, and they impose those daddy issues on their kids. So, to her credit, she didn't bad my my, my my grandfather, although he deserved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, he deserved it from everything that I know. But not, not that I whole, know a whole lot about him, but what I know is enough, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, I, and I met the man, you know, we, we visited him and stuff like that. But, um, you know, again, he just wasn't, thankfully, he wasn't the person that my father used as an example to be a dad. Right. You know, and, and, and I think that sometimes, again, we kind of under, I, I think we under value the significance of the models that our parents have and also uh, under undervalue the significance of how we impact our sons, our daughters generationally. And so that's why when I talk to people, I always tell them everything you do today, you might not think guys I talk to in their twenties, Everything you do today has a generational impact. You need to start thinking about legacy now. You can't wait until you're in your 30s or 40s. So you have kids. You have you start. You start thinking about legacy now, and it's not just the financial legacy. What are those principles? What are those? What, what are those beliefs that you have? Because 
you'll understand legacy when you have grandkids. You'll understand the significance of what you're teaching your kids when you have grandkids. The challenge of confused people, which I go back to that, the challenge of people who are confused is when you ask them the, the principles question, they don't have any. Or, or the principles they do have, I've noticed, are principles that are based in unexamined assumptions of shoulds and oughts, um, a lot of which are based in, and again, this is something that we explore in depth by reading great books by great authors who have promulgated these ideas and then by questioning them and examining them. Um, so, you know, on our, on our leadership lessons from the great books podcast, we're going to be reading Nietzsche very soon because Nietzsche, along with Dostoyevsky created the underpinnings of nihilism and existentialism and, um, the unexamined, no, they created the underpinnings of that. And that led to relativism and then and the rise of moral relativism, the inability of folks to make a judgment in general, men or women to make a judgment, um, and to feel co culturally confident in doing so. And, and no one goes, I won't say no one. There are very few people who are reading Nietzsche now, but there's a lot of people who say that they follow the Bible, but are really Nietzscheans underneath. And they don't know that, by the way, they don't know that language. They don't know the words, but again, it's one of those cultural tropes that has outlasted the original founder. And so I'm a person who believes in going back to source documents. You go back and you read what people said. You go back and you read what people wrote, what people wrote down. Um, we have one of the most literate cultures in the history of the freaking world. We have more access to information than anybody has had on the face of this planet since pfft, ever, right? We're illiterate mentally, right? Right, but we're illiterate mentally and we're illiterate emotionally. And the reason we are is because we're not reading Thus Spake Zarathustra and really pulling apart Nietzsche and asking that wily German, did you really mean what you said you meant? Or was it other people who interpret it wrong? And we actually need to kick those people out of the canon and we actually go back to Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. You know and, 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 or, or, or do we actually know what's in our, you talk about being a person of faith. Okay. Do we actually know what's in our Bible? Have we actually read that? By the way, Pilate asked a great question. Speaking of, you know, Pilate, we're recording this close to the, the Easter holiday and Passover in America um, and worldwide. Uh, Pilate asked a great question of Jesus, which is a question I interestingly don't hear a lot of theologians talk about about, but what is truth? And Jesus didn't answer him. He just stood there. That's an amazing, that's one of the amazingly shocking questions of the Bible, kind of similar to one that Cain asked of Abel back in the, back in Genesis. And when he spilled Abel's blood and blood and God was like, what are you doing? And Cain goes, am I my brother's keeper? And of course, you know, the question then gets answered way forward 2,000 years later or so, 5,000 years later or so in the New Testament, where Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees and they ask him, what are the two greatest commandments? And of course, the first commandment, because he was a good Jew, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, your all your mind, all your soul and all your, all your body. And then the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. These, the law, the law and prophets, this is what he said, all the law and prophets hang on both of those things. And then the Pharisees try to nail him, right? The, by the way, the male Pharisees try to nail him and they go, who is my neighbor? <laughs> and then he tells them the story about, you know, the, um, the Good Samaritan. Right. 
and he upends them. I love the book of John, by the way, because he's just upending people left and right. He's just getting right. after people left and right and right. doing it in a winsome, wholesome, courageous way. Um, but people don't know this. This is the this is the core documents thing. They don't know what underlies their unexamined assumptions. And so when you talk about mentoring people, which again, I think is very valuable. I think people need it desperately. And you ask them that principles question. I'm always curious because you can hear, I listen to what people talk about. I listen to the language people use and I can hear their principles underneath their language because they'll use words that they don't understand and right. you know they don't understand them. Right, right, and so right. do you do you dive a little bit deeper underneath that? And, and then I want to talk about people of color a little bit here because that's another layer. The race layer is another layer of that as well. Right, but right, do you right. dive into that a little bit a little bit heavier with them, or do you just kind of you kind of pull it apart gently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, 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 if they have enough, if they have a comfort level that they're willing to do that, yeah, sure. But, okay. but you know, and, and, and I think that, I think it's a combination of I, there, there are a lot of things from, from what you said. I think I think one is. I think you can continue to probe with people because while you're right, people aren't consciously, they don't consciously sort of know, I think fundamentally what they believe in, right. but they kind of feel as if they know what's right and what's wrong and that they're in many cases in a place that just doesn't feel right. right. And, and again, it goes back to, I think that, that having that, that kind of feeling, that kind of nudge sort of thing. So for example, people, you know, you, you look at the college students wanting their loans um, uh, uh, forgiven, forgiven. Um, yeah. You know, they've gone to school, get all this education, they pay all this money and they realize it's a scam. Right. Right. They realize it's a scam. And also, well, wait a minute, but it's after the fact they realize it's a scam, just like working 30 years. You realize, oh, well, this is really a scam. But 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 um, so, so so I think that I think that people are open to being pro to, to to probe into things. But here's the social worker in me: is that we're just really not equipped to handle things in our lives emotionally. I think psychologically, physically. I think again, it goes back to the way that we're raised and the examples that we're expected to follow. Okay, I think often conflict with helping us identify who we really are as individuals. Right, I, think, okay. I, I think that's why, that's why for some okay. people, they wait until they're retired before they really do what their passion is because they yeah. do what yeah. they're supposed to do or what's expected of them. Going back to Cornell West, people are used to being told what to do. Right. right? Now, I was raised a Catholic. Okay, I wasn't spiritually fulfilled as a Catholic, but I never read the Bible throughout catechism. Okay? And so... What, what intrigued me about Christianity was I was encouraged to read the Bible. I was encouraged to question and ask God of things. My, my favorite verse of the Bible is Malachi uh, 3.10, where God says, basically, it's the only place in the Bible. He says, challenge me. Challenge Old me. Testament, Old Testament God, you didn't, with Old Testament God, <laughs> right? Because he took out everybody, and the goldfish too, right? And so, but, but he says, challenge me on this. Right. Mm -hmm. And challenge me. And he says, listen, I will open up the window, oh, the, the windows of heaven. To the you. floodgates of heaven. The floodgate, yes. And all you need to do is give me a little bit of faith. Just give me 10 percent of your money. Because when, awesome. when I was going through some health challenges in, 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 with, with my Crohn's disease, the second set of surgeries, after the first surgery, I told my wife, I can't handle this. Spiritually, I had grown to the point where it was kind of like, OK, God, talk to me. How am I going to make this give you the glory? Right. And he said, he said, substitute tithe for faith. 
It's going to be 10% faith. And then I realized God doesn't expect us to have 100% faith because every stage of our spiritual journey, we're going to experience a crisis of faith. doesn't matter how strong of a Christian you are, you're going to experience a crisis of faith. And it's going to take having just a little bit of faith to move forward in order for us to God to bless us in a big way. But, 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 but sort of going back to that experience as, as a Catholic, I, had a, I, I, I went to high school in the South Bronx. Right back in the 70s, the Bronx was burning. And I remember asking a priest, who turned out to be a pedophile, by the way, but... <laughs> and then there's that. <laughs> and then there's that, yeah. And and, and, no, and we won't even talk about the physical abuse that took place in the Catholic Church, but that, that's a different issue. But um, but I asked him, I, you know, I, I, said, I, said, I said, it was Brother Jesus, I'll never forget this. I said, Brother, if, if God says that we can choose to follow him or not, why is it a mortal sin if we choose not to follow him? Mm-hmm. I thought that was a logical question. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was anything unreasonable. I don't know what his answer was. All I know is that he was yelling from the time he said, you don't believe. And then I just tuned him out. And that, and, and I always knew that you know, God exists. I always believed in God. And I'm appreciative of the Catholic Church for the structure that it gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they completely turned me off to the faith because you were supposed to follow what they told you to do. You weren't supposed to develop a relationship with God. With God, yeah. Right. Well, and a lot of that, and a lot of that comes out of, I mean, talk about source documents. We read City of God. A right. lot of that comes out of Augustine and right. Augustine's conception of um, the words in Luke. Um, compel them to come in, you know, his interpretation of what that actually meant when Jesus said that. And then gradually over 400 years um, until Thomas Aquinas sort of really locked some things in. Um, it was the, it was the molding of church and state into one thing um, a great book about all of this, if you're listening and you want to get a great book about some of the things that Julio and I are talking about in the space of faith, even if you're just curious, right, um, is The History of Christianity by uh, by Paul Johnson. Great freaking book because he's got – he has a ton of access to um, – he's a British historian, so had a ton of access to the old school documents that we don't get in the United States um, and went to Israel and did a whole bunch of research into – what happened after Jesus's ascension and when, when, when the divinity went out and the Holy Spirit came in and human beings started doing their thing and the arguments between Peter and Paul, um, Augustine coming in on the scene, the medieval church, like one of the things that blew me away was in the medieval Catholic church, they were not actually training monks in how to read the Bible. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, they were not training monks. Okay. Like the bishops knew, but the monks didn't. So the ground level monks who were running the abbeys that had vast tracts of land were basically governors. And they behaved in exactly the way you would think a right. governor would behave. <laughs> and the people who worked those tracts of land, the serfs at the time, hated, and the peasants hated the monks. They right. liked going to church because it was a break from work, but they hated the monks. The monks charged them usury. They charged them interest. They loaned yeah, them out yeah, money. Yeah, they were yeah. taking advantage of their crops. They were taking advantage of their wives and their daughters in some cases, you know, and they, so pedophilia is not a new thing. Um, and, uh, you know, they the, so the Catholic Church has a lot to 
a tone, I guess, is the word that I would use. And it's more than just in the modern era. It's It goes down to the entire structure, again, all the way back to Augustine, back to the source documents yeah. that you're basing it off of. And, you know, we wrestled with Augustine. We read the first four books of City of God. And he's a brilliant philosopher. And he's a brilliant thinker. And, he, and he absolutely, if he were around today, he would be fighting tooth and nail against what he would view as an incredibly corrupt pagan culture. Incredibly corrupt. Um, and he'd be yelling and screaming as fast as he possibly could. But again, it's where people, just like Nietzsche, it's where people go after him and who builds on top of that. And I do think a lot of people miss the, they miss the mark. You know, they do. They yeah. miss the mark. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well you know, I, I, and I don't think it's just the Catholic Church, but I think that it's all, I think it's all faiths that, we tend to forget that there are people who are trying to implement this thing called faith. And there is an inherent conflict, certainly for Christians and, and going back to men, mm -hmm. we, we are trying to model the perfect man. Right. And, and we always fall short. Right. And, and, and because we always fall short, I think sometimes as men, what we do, one, we, we beat ourselves up yep. being unworthy. Secondly, we come across other men that are their, their ego, their status as be as, as a man is measured by their ability to beat down other men. Right. Yeah. And, I would agree with that. And then we, we tend to compare, as one of my mentors says, we tend to compare our worst against their best. Mm -hmm. And, and we, you know, we, 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 in silence, we have these whole psychological things like Shad Helmstel talks about, you know, what to say when you talk to yourself. We're always saying these negative things about ourselves. And depending on the kind of home environment you come up in, that has a, an impact on your self-image. Oh yeah. Going, going back to the Catholic Church and school, people didn't. Rec you know, I, I realized that I loved to learn. I just did not like school. Right. And so I, I always, people were always reminding me that the way I interpreted it, that nothing I did was good enough because mm -hmm. I wasn't reaching my potential. Well, why don't you just celebrate what I was doing, not what I should be doing? Yeah, the whole like meeting your not. You know, I struggle with it, with with that whole idea of like, um, you're not meeting your potential. Number one, I don't know what that means because right. how can you judge my potential? Like, really? Right. But then number two, um, if I'm not meeting that, then instead of just telling me I'm not meeting it, why don't you actually do something to help me? <laughs> it's like it's like the Rodney King incident. Put down the damn camera and come help me. Right. Like, stop watching. Right. me stumble and actually help me otherwise i don't know what i don't know what i don't know what good you're doing yeah yeah it, it, it yeah and you see that nowadays whenever there's an incident people break out their cell phones with oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. upload you know it, it's yeah and 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 um and, and so i think again you get all these different things that kind of well you know weld in and, and then as men we're not supposed to express ourselves mm-hmm and you know, men are supposed to tough it out and figure it out. And 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 I think that even even sort of generationally, I think men of like my generation and older who complain about how weak men are, 
I think what they're doing is their their mental toughness is what masks their mental illness. Oh, that's right. Good. That's that's gonna get clipped. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of this that that kind of gets to this point. So going back to you know high school, right? Mm. So I went, to, I went to Catholic school from third grade to from fourth grade to um, uh, to twelfth grade, and high school buddy about to join a school. We were talking about. Um, you know, just the high school and kind of like the physical nature of discipline when mm-hmm. we were in high school. Oh yeah, we were at we were at a uh, reunion. I think the fortieth, and we asked the kids, you know, how do you, how you guys are this? How are you disciplined? And they said, well, they take our cell phones away <laughs> for twenty four hours. Okay, that was a whole different than we. <laughs> he said, yeah, we heard it was rough for you guys. And so we were talking about it one day and he was saying, yeah, you know, we kind of survived it. But would I let my, would I, would I let somebody do that to my kid? I don't think so. And I had to tell him, well, yeah, we might have survived it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we didn't have our issues in that whole process of survival. Right? Yes. Yes, for sure. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so in, in, in one of my, my elementary school uh, chats on Facebook, what surprised me was some of the some of the, the the women who were in some earlier years were basically talking about the trauma they experienced in their life from the discipline that was imposed on them in elementary school. Because when I was coming up, the priests and the nuns <coughs> had free reign. I, I once told my mother, I said, Ma, if I think that I don't deserve getting hit by one of those priests, I'm going to hit them back. You would have thought that I was going to kill the. Oh my my, my they're devout Catholics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freak her out. I said no. I said, my, you don't see what's going on over there, right? You know, and and that's not to say that I'm against discipline. I'm not saying that, but there is a line. Well, there's multiple ways to discipline somebody. You don't have to, right. you know, physically, you know, threats. You don't have to engage in threats or coercion or abuse. You right. don't have to do any of that, right? And there is a fine line. Between discipline, which uh, Jocko Willick would say discipline equals freedom, and he's he's not incorrect in that. Um, but there's a fine line between discipline and abuse. And right. if you don't know who you are and where the fine line is for you, um, and and that by the way, that fine line involves anger, right? So if you right. are if you're whacking on your kid and you cross that line into being angry, you know where that line is. Parents know yeah. where that line is. You, right. you know where that line is when you're raising a kid, right? And it's up to each individual parent with each individual child to figure that out. And then when you scale that out to, and this is also part of the problem with the school system that I have, the, the school system is not designed to actually discipline your kid in a in a way that if that forces them, no, no, that encourages them to become a better adult. That's actually not it. The point of school is to turn people into better workers in an industrialized system where they can be replaced like widgets. We don't live in that system anymore. We haven't been in that system for a good 30 years. We just yeah, haven't. Right, right, are there right. aspects of the economy that are still there? Sure. For sure. Absolutely. But right. overall, like, Getting your cell phone taken away, yeah, for people, that actually is discipline these days. Like, that is, because the right. future they're looking at is a future that is driven, going to be driven by not just the cell phone, but everything else that's going to come out of that cell phone. 
Right, right, right. And, and here is what I, how I would respond on the discipline part. Because of the way, let's say, my generation was disciplined by parents, and if you went through a faith-based school, certainly it was, it was the case in, in public school in many cases, because there were times where, where some of these administrators or parents crossed the line, yep. these kids, when they become parents, they said, I'm not going to do that to my child. Right, they overcorrect so in the other direction. They go the other direction. Yep. And then they don't want that school to reinforce that discipline. There isn't that mutual um, understanding of reinforcing certain certain values, if you will, certain principles, certain codes of conduct. You know, the parents will come in and basically say, you hit my child, I'm going to hit you. The kids know that. Right. And so they'll play on that. And so... We, we, we actually took our son out of public school after his second grade and put him in a small private Christian school, okay. in part because some of this stuff, you know, with, with, with this whole uh, sex education and all that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, was, that was happening like, you know, 35 years or so ago. Right. And we just thought it was too young for him to be taught that sort of stuff. Uh, and obviously it was appropriate for our, our role, but... Um, his first year in, in, interestingly enough, his second grade teacher in public school, when she found out he wasn't coming back, she called me the last day and said that I thought that it was, she thought it was the right decision, right? And, and even at a time when I was like, well, it's just the right thing to do type of thing. And then when he came back that first week of school, he would come home and I'd say, hey, what's going on in the playground? I said, are you guys playing the same games that you played over the public school? He said, yeah. I said, okay. The difference was in this Christian school, he wasn't coming home after after being in a playground on edge, but he was in a public school. Mm-hmm. Different kid, the kids were, were being taught differently in the home. Mm-hmm. You can see that in the way that they played their games. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so so you want to talk about men of cult men of color. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, let's let's <laughs> let's transition into that. So, okay. Let's layer race on top of that. We already sort of mentioned this, and everybody who listening to this is who listening to this in the context in an American context, even a global context. I think most people around the globe know who are listening. You know, America has its racial problems and its racial struggles. News at eleven. Uh, so, um, so now that we got that out of the way. <laughs> what? How do we? How do men of color? Um, Pick any color you want, but how do men of color deal with these types of, not deal with, how can they best be coached or mentored? What advice would you give them if they were sitting across from you? Because, and I'll tell you, just I'll, I'll, I'll speak as a, as an, uh, uh, a person who, and this is, you know, this, my language is going to reveal my conception, a person who um, is an American who happens to be black. This is going to realize, you're going to realize my conception, right now, yeah, where, I, where I place my identity. Um, for me, I take a very Asian perspective on what white people think of me. I'm not really too concerned about what they're thinking in their head about me. And by the way, I do realize and recognize that that is a um, reward, because I don't like the word privilege, that is a reward that I have been granted by the work that other folks did socially. But I don't honor that work by refighting those fights. I honor that work by moving the ball forward. 
So let's move the ball forward, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm raising my kids to move the ball forward. So I'm not really too concerned about what, and honestly, other people who are the races, I'm not really too concerned about what you think of me in your head, culturally, and based on my skin color. I fundamentally, this is how my parents raised me, my father as well, my father, my mother, my stepfather, all those folks. Um, (laughs) What you think of me is a you problem. (laughs) That's a you problem, not a me problem. I've got enough me problems in here in my head to take me all day, right? Just all day long. I can't be involved in your problems in your head with me. And so once you open your mouth and something drops out your mouth, then we can deal with it. But until then, that's your business. Now, again, scaled up to public policy. Sure, there's problems scaled up to institutional policy. Sure, there's problems, racism, prejudice, scaled up to, yeah, okay, fine. But how do you change those kinds of systems? Well, you have to move the ball forward. You can't relitigate past incidents. You just, you just can't. You can't do that. You have to move the ball forward, which is where, and my mother told me this years ago, class becomes infinitely more important than race. Like yeah, way yeah. more important when you start thinking about it in that way. Because, and I've noticed this as an adult, as a 40-year-old adult, I live in a neighborhood that's multi-ethnic with a bunch of other people who are between 40 and 50, but we're all the same class, and nobody's calling anybody anything. And we're all, all of our kids play together, we're all trying to get along, and don't nobody have no problem with nobody. It's class at a certain point. So when we talk about men of color, the class distinctions in, in African-American culture become hugely important. The class distinctions in um, Latina, Latin and Hispanic culture become incredibly important. But in minority groups, they don't talk about class because that seems to be like a third rail thing. Well, well, yeah. And, 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 and and again, there's, there's a lot to parse. I, first of all, I think that part of the problem in this country, obviously fundamentally we're a country founded on the principle of freedom, but we're built on what I would call as the ideology of freedom. Mm-hmm. which basically says freedom is for one group and not for the other. And as much as we talked about the documents, we hold these true to be self-evident, further along in those documents, you and I consider to be less than human, mm-hmm. right? So there, there is an inherent contradiction in the founding documents of the country that I think has created, I think, a certain mindset that... Um, that doesn't understand the difference between racism and being influenced by racism. And consequently, everything has to be either racist or you're not, as opposed to understanding that you can not be racist, but you can be influenced. We're all influenced by it. But the issue is, do we take it to the extent that we are become racist? And use a parallel. We're all influenced by the devil. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're evil, right? Unless okay. we go there. Right. Okay. Unless we go there, right? And so and so I think for, for, for men of color, I think you're right. I think that we have to take the approach that we don't care what people think. And I think generally speaking, I think that is the mindset. Well, it's not care. It's I don't think I'm not too concerned about it. It's no, the no, concern no. part. Yeah, right? no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, but I, I think that we're... I think that where the anger and the frustration comes in is when 
you're constantly dealing with that mindset as you're doing everything that you can to advance the ball. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so, and so, and so one, I think that going back to this issue of excellence, you know, I, the way that I learned to deal with racism as a young professional, well, there are two things. One is up until I was about 30 years old, I think 30, early thirties, my success for navigating those early years of my professional life were heavily influenced by the lessons I learned growing up in New York, because that was the one thing that I had that I can rely on mm -hmm. that I can, you know, cause I'm a believer that God prepares whatever, whatever we're going through, God has already provided us with the skills and the ability to deal with it. We just need to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And so I was able to connect the dots with my experiences growing up and that helped navigate through. And the first person, my first real mentor, my political mentor was the guy who hired me to do the Hispanic civil rights stuff. And this guy was probably about three or four, maybe five years younger than the leaders of the other civil rights group. All these other folks, they marched in the 60s. They got their heads busted in. So here you had this young upstart who was outperforming them. Right. Right. And his thing was, I don't care if you're Hispanic or not, you're either for us or you're against us. I'm not going to put you, I'm not going to support putting you in a position just because your last name is Hernandez. If you're not going to do anything that's going to help us. Oh, merit? Oh, we're going to judge people on merit? You know, get out of town. And, that's and, a revolutionary idea. And, 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 so, and so, so my introduction to politics was working for him, and he helped write basically write half. The last time the country passed an immigration bill, he basically wrote half that bill. Okay. And there were two incidences that really impressed me. And, and, and again, going back to this whole race issue, one we were in the in, in the hall of I think it was the Cannon Office Building, and Congressman Dale Dale Kildee from Michigan. Mm -hmm. something happened so this guy his name was arnold he he was apologizing to the congressman mm -hmm. for an incident that made the congressman look that the congressman stopped him mid-sentence and said no arnold you don't need to apologize i know your reputation you're good now is that impressed me then there was a woman uh um we were talking about this guy and it didn't dawn on me till maybe six months ago that maybe they had dated at one time because she had she she was ugly in her description of this guy you know it was like you know when, when a woman is angry and she's cussing oh yeah you just don't want to be around her right and and it just dawned on me six months ago i wonder if they were dating but um but then i said okay that's fine i said but let me ask you this one question she said go ahead is he good at what he does and you would have thought that jesus christ walked in the room her entire demeanor changed. He said, oh, yeah, he's the best. I said, okay, that's all I need to know. And so I I, de I determined that... Yeah, she probably was dating him. That's that's the only yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, 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 exactly. That turned exactly. his name. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, I, don't, I, you know, and, and I, I, I sort of, you know, again, it was a revelation. Why didn't I think of that back then? But anyway, um, but, 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 but watching him, I realized that the way to deal with race and racism was I was going to be at good at whatever I know, I'm going to know. And I'm not going to be afraid to say I don't know, but I'm going to make sure that whatever it is I know, I know that I know. So that they can't take that away from me, right? Mm -hmm. And in the process, whether they like, and part of this is a New York thing, whether you like me or not, 
again, going back to things that influence us, right? And 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 I'll come back to that in a second. But 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 what what I realized was whether you like me or not, I can't control. What I can control is whether you respect me or not. If I can do the things that 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 at minimum you'll respect me, whether you like me or not, I have more control over that than whether you like me or not. Right. And I remember and I remember uh, getting that from um, Reggie Jackson. Uh, you know, NBC used to have the games of the week and they were interviewing Reggie Jackson. This is in the heydays of the Bronx and the Bronx Zoo stuff. And he said, you can love me, you can hate me, but you have to respect me. Right. And I remember grabbing onto that and I said, yeah, that makes so much sense. And so I think that we as men of color, I think the, the one thing that we have to strive to do is one is, is strive for excellence. I think number two, I think we need to realize that every time, my objective is not necessarily to end racism. That's like saying, I'm going to, you know, uh, that I have the power to stop the devil from doing what he's doing. Right. But what I can do is do everything I can to do things that, that prove that the devil's alive, right? We're succeeding far more. We're proving every day that racism can't win, right? When we're raising our families, we're proving racism can't win. It's not so much that the country is not racist and that because of all these people who are successful, it just proves that America is not racist. No, it just proves that racism can't win. Going back to those words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. There's a reason why we were not allowed to read, because when your soul is stirred, right, great things happen. And I think that we don't, we tend to under, we tend to minimize the little things that we do that really lead to great things, because man is driven by the desire to do something great, right? And history is written not by the names of people in history books. History is, is, is made by the names of people that have been forgotten over a period of time. And we don't, we, we don't take to heart that when we wake up in the day and we tell our wives we love them, the generational impact that has. And that's another click in terms of defeating racism. You know, when, when we keep the families intact, when we attend, our church is a big Bible Bible teaching, family, men, women, building church, right? When we continue to do those things, we can't be concerned at the end of the day with everything that's around us. And, 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 and it takes, again, I think men being transparent with each other and men sharing their experiences with each other, either through formal mentorship or during the course of the conversations and, and understanding that there are people who are not people of color who are more than willing to help us along the way. I mean, I, I, I was reading something about the, um, I'm being a little long-winded, so I apologize. I, I was reading something about um, the Dred Scott decision mm -hmm. and about how when that decision was made, there's a guy here in Maryland who wrote a book about the history of um, the, the history of Maryland from the founding fathers on it. I haven't picked up the book yet, but in reading an, an, an excerpt, one of the things that it said was that even though the Supreme Court ruled against um, Dred Scott, 
there were people in Maryland who said, we don't believe that we're going to do what we want to do anyway. You know, so, so there were people, you know, there were people who were not people of color who knew right from wrong and, and are, are, are more, more than happy to open doors for us, to share insights, to, 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 to guide us to learn what they've learned to help us advance to the, to the extent that we want to advance moving forward. And, and, so, and so part of it, again, goes back to sharing those experiences. And part of my passion in talking to younger folks is I didn't have a lot of people who looked like me, who were at my, my age or my experiences and were willing to share the information, right? Uh, and if they were there, I didn't, you know, there were too few of them for me to, to be able to find out where even if I just say something as simple as, no, you're not crazy, <laughs> right? What you're going through is normal, right? You're 30 years old. You got a wife, you got a kid. You kind of like, oh my God, what, what's my life? Well, hey, that's normal. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we, 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 we think that being a man, you know, once you're 21, all of a sudden you're, or 18, once you're a man, <laughs> Don't work that way. <laughs> Don't work that way. Your brain doesn't all of a sudden just click on. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and one of the things that that, that that I've learned is that you know when we're young, we want our dads to confirm our manhood, right? You know, but when we're dads, we want our sons to affirm our own. Yeah, right. Because who we are as men, our sons are a reflection of who we think we are as men. Yes, I, I remember reading a um. I'm gonna close. We we gotta come anyway, around. Yeah. We gotta come around the horn here. <laughs> I got you, uh, got you, got you. I just got the uh, just got the call that I gotta go around. I gotta take my son to uh, to martial arts. So, oh, nice, nice, nice. Yeah, he's. Uh, we got him started in that. It's good for discipline. <laughs> my son did that from five to thirteen, and yeah. it was probably the best thing that we ever did for him. Yep, yeah, yeah. He's he's five, so he's he's struggling a little bit, but you know things are coming along. And you know what I did? I mean, I did. I've got a first degree black, second degree black belt in Taekwondo. Um, I did rugby for a lot of years um, between like in my mid twenties and into my mid thirties before my knees all fell apart. Yeah. Um, and now I do, you know, weightlifting and I do jujitsu um, and I'll be doing that for a long time. Yeah. Um, but you know, those kinds of things, uh, those kinds of singular sports where yes, it can be a team, but fundamentally at the end of the day, when you go out on the mat or um, when you enter the ring, you know, there's not really any help there. You you've got to figure it out, right? Um, it's like the entrepreneurial game. You know, you got to figure it out. You you just have to. You don't have a choice. Yeah. And so giving a kid that kind of structure—that's the word. Um, particularly a male child, that kind of structure. That's right. Um, my wife and I decided that that was very important and to kind of start that early. Um, as we round the horn here, I want to ask you one final question to kind of close out. Would you like to promote anything today? <laughs> and uh, and where can we get this book? When is it going to come out? Where can we get this book? I, I, I still need another six months because uh, I, I I think God's been telling me to to get this done. Yeah, you know, get he's on been it. telling me you know, kind of got, you know. Um, what what um, I I would suggest to people to do two things. If you're interested in learning more about real estate, more than happy to to share, give my email, and and have people. Um, uh, send me some information, but particularly for men, I'd like to hear your story about this journey to manhood and what you find to be 
the most confusing aspect of it all? And, and, and how did you how did you deal with it? Because I think that I think the one thing that's good about I think this generation of men is that we're realizing the importance of opening up and being transparent with one another. Mm-hmm. It's too much that's going on in everybody's lives. Too many things like you know suicides. Too many things like substance abuse. Um, you know, spouse will be, you know, too many things that are just not healthy. And, and, and people are realizing it's okay to say I need help, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or, you know, just, just give me some, some guidance. So, so, you know, I'll, I'll, if you want me to tell you, give my email address, let people. Um, yeah. And we'll put your yeah, email address in the show notes. You can, yeah. You okay. Can okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's letters JBJ1153 at gmail.com. And, and I'd love to really just kind of hear your story, hear your journey. And, and that will help me as I, as I move forward. And, and I appreciate just the forum here just to be able to, to sort of share. Hopefully it was, it was helpful and, and uh, insightful for some folks who, who get to, to watch or listen to it. Yeah, no, I think we had a great conversation here with Julio Barreto Jr. We will have links for you to contact him. We'll have that email address. Um, we'll have ways for you to connect with him on, uh, on Facebook, um, yeah. And on LinkedIn um, as well, uh, so we'll have links to that in the uh, in the area below the player where all the show notes are. As usual, this is Hazan Sorrells presents on the Hazan Sorrells Experience. I want to thank you for taking time today to listen to us. Uh, you know, please pick up this podcast. Please listen. Please like. Uh, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Uh, this is part of a much larger arc that we're doing, talking about fathers and sons, talking about men. Um, and yes, ladies, eventually we will move on to talking about mothers and daughters because there's another side to this equation as well. Um, but for right now we're focusing on this. So, uh, thank you, Julio and I'm out.